Welcome to yet another episode of Shortcast Over Coffee. My guest today is the current mayor of the city of Carmel, Indiana, Jim Brainerd. Jim has served as the mayor of Carmel, Indiana since 1996. First elected in 1995, Jim is currently in his seventh term as the mayor of this fast-growing, affluent city just north of Indianapolis. Under Jim's leadership, Carmel has transformed from a sleepy Midwestern town to a thriving hub of economic development and population growth. Jim has championed massive infrastructure projects, including the building of roundabouts, trails, and other amenities that have helped attract corporate headquarters and new residents. In this episode, we talk about the initiatives Jim took as the mayor for the city of Carmel, including green spaces, getting rid of traffic lights, and making it one of the most walkable cities in the US. The ad revenue from this episode will go to the Ocean Cleanup Initiative. Please visit www.theoceancleanup.com to know more. It's www.theoceancleanup.com. Let's now get into the episode. Welcome, Jim, to the podcast. It's great to be with you today. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. How are you? I'm very good. It's gotten cold in Indiana the last day or two. Last week, it was uh, in the 90s Fahrenheit or 30 Celsius, and today it's uh, 25 degrees cooler. Oh, wow. Uh, I hear that you're working remote today. I am. I get a lot done from my house and uh, started during the pandemic, of course, like many people, and I find I don't get interrupted as much. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Jim, I was researching about you, and what I find incredible is you first became the mayor. Uh, you became the mayor for the first time in 1996. Uh, Carmel, Indiana might have been a really small town uh, in 1996, and it's your seventh consecutive term. And you are one of the most um, longest serving mayors in the U.S. So congratulations uh, for that. Uh, what what has changed uh, between 1996 and uh, 2023, uh, not just from a population standpoint, but in general in the city of uh, Carmel, Indiana? Well, of course, the population did change. It, it's uh, quadrupled, roughly 25,000 to over 100,000. But... I think more interestingly is how the city grew during that period of time, because we made the decision after being spurred on by our electorate to build something besides the traditional sprawling suburb. Uh, so many places look like the uh, big box retail parking lot. I joke when I talk with anybody go for a manic walk past the Walmart parking lot this week in, but what I'm trying to suggest is that we can build our cities so they're much more beautiful. They're more focused on the pedestrian, not vehicles. We still have to accommodate the vehicles. But since World War II, we have built most of our cities in the United States, our new cities, uh, for cars, not for people. And so we started to investigate why that was and what the legal and financial hurdles were to building a beautiful traditional city. And I think we figured that out. So unlike most US suburbs of major cities, we're on the edge of Indianapolis, uh, it's a 2 million metro area. Um, 
We share a street with Indianapolis, but our suburb is very, our edge city, I like to say, is very different because we have a walkable downtown. We're something more than just a string of subdivisions with a good public school system and a good library. We have uh, a lot of mixed use buildings in our downtown area. We have uh, relegated most of the car parking or car storage, as I like to call it, underground or to garages. And then when we build an above ground garage, we usually face it with interesting buildings. Uh, so it looks better uh, to the pedestrian. You know, it's just not about being able to go out for a walk. It's going to, it's about going out for an interesting walk and walking past a hundred houses that all look like the next one. That's not interesting. And then turning around and going back is there's, you really can't walk in many of our suburbs to places that one needs to go. Um, same with a big parking structure above ground. It, it doesn't become more walkable if you walk past a block of blank building with cars in it. Uh, so it's important to line those buildings with shops or uh, houses uh, with entrance. The parking can be then back in that garage. So we've built our city and we've we focused on things, I think, that build civic wealth for the entire community, uh, places for people from different backgrounds to come together and get to know each other and find out what they have in common. That's very important to our representative government, I think, particularly in that country is made up from, of people from all over the world with different faiths, different races, different places of origin. And cities have always served the function of bringing people together um, but yet the last 70 years in the United States, we've designed our cities without much thought about, about where all, all these different groups of people will have opportunities to meet each other, assimilate and get to know each other. Um, and that's an important thing that cities do for their residents as well. Yeah, uh, I, I think you you say a very important point that a walk isn't enough. You know, the walk has to be very very interesting. You know that 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 makes that walk so much so much better. And I'm I'm just curious to know what uh, you were doing before uh, running for the mayor of the city of Carmel. I grew up in a small town in northern Indiana. Uh, matriculated at Butler University when I was eighteen. Was graduated with a degree in history and communication. And then uh, went to law school and became a lawyer. And so for the 14 years prior to becoming mayor, I practiced law. Okay, fantastic. in architecture and why some cities were nice places and others weren't. And, you know, a, a serious interest in architecture. Um, you know, when it, middle school, you know, we always write that essay where we have to talk about three professions we might like. Architecture is one of mine. So even though I didn't become an architect, I now get to work with lots of architects as we build our new city. Yeah. And I, I believe that is also a part of uh, sort of beautification of downtown and, and mixed use spaces that, that you were mentioning earlier, right? Yes. Yeah. It, it's, you know, there's it's an economic development reason for building beautiful cities as well. We're, we're on a flat plain with lousy weather and no mountains, no oceans, not even a river through the middle of downtown. And um, we've got to be able to compete for the best and brightest from the greatest universities in the world. And to the extent that those people that are 150 some corporate headquarters need to succeed, 
don't want to spend their lives here, don't want to raise their families in our community, those companies will eventually go elsewhere and they certainly won't expand here. So it's tremendously important that, that it's a good enough place, in fact, a great place to raise a family, spend your life. Uh, we only get you know, a few choices when we decide where we're going to live. Um, and, and so I, I joke, sometimes I show a picture of, uh, of uh, San Diego from Coronado Island, you know, and those of you that know about it, you know what I'm talking about, but it's palm trees, a mountain range. We know it's uh, 20 degrees Celsius because it's always 20 degrees Celsius or 72 Fahrenheit, whatever the it's perfect temperature. And there's blue waves and sailboats and just gorgeous. And I say, this isn't Carmel. <laughs> and then I pop up a picture of uh, Northern California, you know, the beaches, you know, probably up by Mendocino and say, this isn't Carmel either. And then I show a picture of Aspen Mountain in Colorado at Twilight and say, this isn't Carmel. Then I show this picture of a flat soybean field and say, this is our palette. <laughs> then I pop up a picture of the Eiffel Tower at Twilight and say, they had the same palette we did. Lousy weather, no mountains and no oceans. And they built a beautiful city. We can do this as well. Trying to get people to think bigger, to think outside understand that our competition is across the globe just not locally and plus it's just the right thing to do for the people that have chosen to live here why not have a beautiful city as we're growing this quickly we have choices and we set very high standards some of the developers complained they didn't like our standards and left but we attracted far more really good developers that wanted to be part of a quality place and do and build quality buildings uh so it's worked out very well for us yeah, I think some cities are just, uh, or some states are just blessed with so much natural uh, goodness in terms of weather and beauty. Uh, you took the example of uh, Coronado Island. Uh, I used to live in San Diego and I've been uh -huh. to Coronado many, many times. Uh, it, it is gorgeous, but then uh, it's important to do the best with what you have. Uh, and I think that's where uh, that's where uh, your significance is, uh, is much above a lot of other mayors. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask was, you know, you become the mayor in 1996. Uh, did you start making this radical shift right from day one? Or did you get inspired from your own childhood? Because uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure American cities were a lot different back in those days. Or uh, did you take inspiration from some of the cities in Europe? Uh, what, what, what made you change? All of the above. I had been fortunate to travel to Europe. I remembered beautiful walkable cities from when I was a boy uh, before we had as many cars as we do today and had as much urban sprawl as we do today. And, you know, I listened to the public and they were yearning for a traditional city. They talked about being able to walk places they needed to go, about being able to walk out to a restaurant and see a show and, and, and not be tied to their car and not be in their car for hours and hours. You know, city planners had their big victory about 1890, 1900. They figured out that if we had single-use zoning where all the factories were over on this side of town and all the housing was on the other side of the town, people would live an extra 20 years or so. And it was a great move forward for our civilization. However, we continued to do that and do it and do it. But, you know, as the industry became much cleaner, we still did it. We did it because 
just the way we had done things for so long. Uh, but we've created a system where you can't walk anywhere you need to go. We know that obesity rates go down by 35% of people just walk 10 minutes to and from work. We know that overweight rates, you know, the next category, go down by a similar amount, about 30%, if you walk 10 minutes to and from work every day. Um, we know that um, urban sprawl from a mental health standpoint is unhealthy because we're social animals and we, we need social interaction. Uh, we saw this particularly in the 1950s when most families in the United States only had one car and the husband, the engine, would leave with the car in the morning to go to work and, 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 and his spouse, the wife, would be almost trapped in our house. You know, the neighbors were sometimes quite a ways away. And generally, these folks had moved from places, to traditional city blocks. They had lots of activity. They'd walk to the market. They'd walk to the park. Suddenly, they were very isolated in the mental health rates. You know, there's a famous uh, book and then later a movie called Valley Dolls about women in these situations starting to use uh, uh, drugs because of the social isolation they were thrown into. Uh, because of bad city design, quite honestly. Uh, you know, you look at some pictures of our cities back in the 1920s and 1910s, they were beautiful and you saw people everywhere. Today, you look at our city, what do you generally see? An eight-lane highway and exit ramps? Uh, we also know that we don't want to build too high. There's a lot of uh, research about mental health. Uh, the Japanese even have a word for it, committing suicide outside of tall buildings. Once you get over about six or seven stories and can no longer have a connection with street life, uh, suicide and mental health rates go way up as well. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the way we built Western Europe and other places, you know, up to uh, the invention of structural steel in the 1880s was probably right. We, you know, there's a lot of experimentation, but actually that was about right. So what we found from the data that we've uh, acquired over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, I think I think in Europe, uh, you know, most cities don't have. Uh, I mean, apart from the downtown areas or whatever, they they probably don't have anything above 12, 12 floors. Uh, and and you know, if you go to like the twenty fifth or the forty seventh floor uh, in a skyscraper, you're you're sort of cut off from reality. I think I think you make a very interesting point there. Um, so so the population growth of Carmel, Indiana, was it was it driven by people? wanting to move more to the suburbs from Indianapolis or did it have something to do with the, the zoning laws or or, or, or redlining? Well, I, I think two things were going on. People were moving from Indianapolis, but a lot of people were moving from out of state as well as our reputation grew. You know, we built 250 miles of bike trails. That's one thing you can do when you're flat. It's, it's easy to bike. And, and, and so we did a lot of that. We have a great public school system and library. We focused on public art making the city beautiful, making our road system, you know, roundabouts are just one part of it, but far safer and easier to get places in a car if you choose to drive. Uh, so it's a very safe city. All these things, I do run into people uh, every week or two. It seems like that, well, I was online. I can work remotely. I went online to look for the best places to live in the U.S. and saw Carmel's name. And we knew somebody or we thought we'd go check it out. And uh, it's amazing how uh, people will find you that otherwise wouldn't have because of good marketing. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I was looking up the same uh, statistics uh, uh, that you were mentioning and Carmel has consistently ranked uh, high up there uh, in terms of, you know, best city to live in, best city to raise your kids, best city to raise your family. Uh, so so that's fantastic. And, and just for the listeners, um, the green space in Carmel, Indiana has risen from 40 to 800 acres under under, under Jim. Uh, so that that is quite fantastic. Uh, uh, I, I also remember watching some of the videos from from the 1940s or pre-World War era uh, of some of our cities. And it's fascinating how how close communities were. Uh, and, you know, every city had so many streetcars. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you know, when you were working on this uh, city planning or public policy for Carmel was streetcars ever in your in your thought uh, that let, we need to bring back our streetcars? Yes, they are. Whether it's a streetcar or a tram, but what I call intra-city public transit, uh, it could even be buses. I, I like streetcars like you. I, the developers like it too because they know when those rails are in the ground. Those stops won't move as easily if it's a bus stop. And so they're more willing to invest money around those stops. Uh, but we need to get to a certain density before we know that works. Well, I think we're almost there in Carmel. We've been studying it. We have uh, routes. We've been working with a consultant uh, from San Jose, California, uh, that has some expertise in transit. Uh, and I think the city, I won't be mayor after the conclusion of this year, calendar year, but uh, we'll have those plans in place. And I hope the next administration takes them forward because I think we have enough density in our downtown area now over the holiday season in December over the Christmas and Hanukkah season. We'll, we'll uh, have, we have a big uh, Christmas market and thousands of people coming, 450,000 people over a six week period. And so we have been experimenting with, we've rented some uh, old fashioned trolleys that are on rubber wheels. They're really buses that look like trolleys. And it's just been moving people around uh, from the area where the market's held or restaurants in the downtown areas. It's cold that time of year. And uh, these vehicles are often filled with people. So I, I think there is demand for it. And I believe it will work well in our downtown area. Yeah, that is fantastic. Uh, I have had similar experience in Laguna Beach where, you know, you just park your car and there is a free trolley service that takes you wherever you want. You can literally get down at the spot of your your interest and 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 enjoy enjoy the beautiful weather. Um, th that that that's fantastic. And and I think one of the problems with with streetcars, like you mentioned, is you need to have a certain density before which a particular station would cater to X amount of people. And and I think uh, LA is facing something similar where they have they have light rail, but at the same time, light rail stops are right in the middle of highways so so getting yeah. to the station is a problem uh and that is affecting ridership quite a bit but planners call the last mile yeah you get yeah. to the station um and again you know so much of both la and indianapolis and cities throughout the country are not built to be walkable many times streets don't have sidewalks and the houses are so far apart you have to walk past an awful lot of houses to get someplace you want to go the stores, you know, for instance, a grocery store, I'm told, requires 7,000 families to be profitable. And so are those 7,000 families coming from a 20-mile area or a two-mile area? And, if it's, and think of all the extra cars on the road if they're coming from a 20-mile circle around that store. 
That's why urban sprawl also contributes so much to traffic congestion. People are having to drive long distances for short, easy errands, which if they lived in a denser mixed-use area, they could walk to. You know, there's yep. a store downstairs across the block. You run down the stairs, walk across the street, get what you need and go back. Um, or you drive 10 to 12 miles or even five miles. But you think about that, then cumulatively with thousands and thousands of people, one reason we have so much road congestion, bad city planning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cannot agree more. Uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll come, come, to the, come to the roundabouts in a bit, but... Uh, when you read, when you were thinking of redesigning Carmel as a city, uh, how much burden was it uh, fr from a taxpayer standpoint, and how much of what percentage of budget was was taken uh, to to remodel a city like Carmel? Because what, from what I understand, Carmel still has one of the lowest tax rates uh, in, in cities across America. So, how did you manage all that? We used debt. We used it hopefully intelligently. Uh, one, one device we use to get the cars underground, underground parking is very expensive, about $80,000 US of space. Even parking in a garage, depending on whether it's precast or cast in place, concrete can be 40,000 space. So that's expensive, you know, 10 spaces above ground, 40,000 below ground, 800,000. Um, but what we did let me give an example. We have one nine-acre site now that we're about to enter into a public partnership. The our redevelopment commission purchased it a few years ago. We've been planning it. Um, nine acres is a big piece of land in a city, uh, but eighty-five percent of it was an asphalt parking lot, and about fifteen percent was a one-story, nineteen-fifty-ish retail shopping center in a U-shaped, uh, horseshoe-shaped. And so we tore those buildings down. We were getting $60,000 a year in property tax because parking lots don't pay much. We'll now get $3 million a year. Think about that, 60,000 to 3 million. So we'll take, let's say 2.4 million of that, that anticipated revenue under Indiana law for up to 25 years and borrow against that anticipated revenue and use it to put the cars underground. And then we're allowed to build at the density that'll get us to 3 million, but no higher than, than five, six stories. While keeping the taxes low. So, you know, this pays for itself in essence is what I'm explaining. So I had to, to get that loan of tens of millions of dollars. We didn't have to burden the taxpayer. Uh, and in fact, we, we don't even sign on those loans generally anymore. The developer who's building the building, who's getting the benefit of that underground parking, uh, signs on the loans. So the taxpayers aren't at risk. Yeah, this, this far-sightedness is, is what is required uh, of a mayor. Um, and, and coming to... Tax Recommendal Finance, uh, the acronym is TIF, T-I-F. Okay. And most states have it. California used to have it. Uh, Governor Brown made some changes to it, but uh, not sure it's quite as readily available in California today. Okay. Um, so yeah, talking about farsightedness, you you it was 1996, and the population, like you mentioned, was 25,000. What made you decide that 
we need to get rid of traffic lights as much as possible. Uh, you can explain it through statistics, but but 25,000 is not when people usually take an action. They take it when, you know, it's 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 high time. Um, but uh, explain me the, the thought process behind roundabouts. Well, I was fortunate because, I, as I said earlier, I was a historian and lawyer. I knew nothing about civil engineering. So I asked lots of questions about why we did things the way we were doing them. And many times I got the answer from the civil engineers, the consulting engineers, I don't know, that's just the way we do it. And I said, well, would you be open to different ways of doing it that might work better? I, When I was in graduate school, I had spent some time in England and I saw the roundabouts there. And these are what you call modern roundabouts. They were invented by two British engineers in the early 1960s. Uh, and counterintuitively, you know, the smaller the circle, the safer it becomes because of speed. It's all about speed. And so there's a lot of confusion about those roundabouts versus the rotaries in New England. Sometimes the mid-Atlantic states are called traffic circles, but they're bigger. They're multi-lane. People go faster in them. I joked, well, have you ever sped up to go through a green light or a yellow light in your life? Uh, No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course not. Nobody's ever done that, right? We've all done. <laughs> but then we know the human error rate is, you know, let's say it's one every 50,000 cars is going to be an accident. That doesn't seem like that much. And until you start to think about it, wait a minute, there's 25,000 cars a day through that intersection. That means we're going to have an accident every two days. Or even there's 10,000 cars a day. We're going to have one every five days. So then the next question is, what type of accident is it going to be? Is it going to be a minor slow speed accident or is it going to be a high speed crash where people just floored it to get through that yellow light? And, and that's when we have fatalities. The US fatality rate per 100,000 people is 12 people a year per 100,000. Indianapolis is, was 15 last year. Other cities in Indiana as high as 30 per 100,000. We're one six the national average of 12. We're just over two fatalities per year. We've never, uh, I don't think we've ever had a two car fatality in a roundabout in Carmel out of our 150 some roundabouts. We've had, have had single car uh, fatalities in our roundabouts. Usually get one or two a year and almost, not almost every time alcohol and drugs have been involved. We had one about a year and a half ago the street was marked 35 miles per hour and the police estimated the driver was going over 120 when he hit a fountain in the middle of the roundabout flipped his car and killed himself and then he was tested which was about 6 a.m on a saturday morning he was tested and he was 0.03 for blood alcohol level and he had metaphetamines in his system he had meth so you know good traffic design can't fix that sort of abuse but but we can design a much safer system for sober people. For we, we know there's bad drivers out there. We also know there's impaired drivers, so you do what you can. But uh, the roundabouts are so much safer. They're better for older drivers because of more response time and slower speeds. They're better for younger drivers because of more response time. They're better for the blind and disabled because cars are going so much slower. You know, sometimes advocates for the blind will say to me, well, we can't, they 
can't hear that audible signal. It says it's okay to go across the crosswalk. And I said, that's misleading. What if somebody blows through that? The sun's in their eyes or they're texting and don't stop. It's going to be a high-speed accident. The runabouts are hard enough to navigate. Everyone knows you have to put down your phone and pay attention. So our data shows that the disabled or the blind and children are actually safer in roundabout pedestrian crossings without a dedicated pedestrian signal than they are at a stoplight. Crossing. Yeah, and 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 a lot of the accidents are are caused when someone is taking a left turn, and with a roundabout, you're completely eliminating right. the left turn, right? Yes. Well, there's also 32 potential conflict points at a signalized uh, uh, intersection with all the left turn motions and right turns. Roundabout only has eight potential conflict points. Okay. So uh, what percentage four of the... in and out, basically. That's, that's, you know... So there's four streets coming into a roundabout, and then there's four headed out, basically. And those are the contact points in and out. Yeah. Yeah. So what percentage of uh, uh, roundabouts in Carmel are, are single lane versus versus multi-lane? Uh, because the reason why I'm asking this question is multi-lane can make it a little more complicated, uh, increase speeds, but the roundabout size will be will be much larger. Um, but but how do you sort of, um, you know, you know, compare a single lane versus multi-lane in Carmel? Oh, we look at traffic fine. And, and so occasionally we do have to go to two lanes. Most of our roundabouts are single lane, but certainly not all. You can also do what's called a slip lane, which means you never enter the roundabout for a right turn. You can do that on all four corners if you want to, or only maybe two corners. We have, you know, morning commute and evening commute using going in one direction. Roundabouts work best if you've got more or less equal traffic from every entrance. When it's all coming from one way, they don't do as well. Um, but having those slip lanes helps capacity by about 12% each time one puts one in. Um, so, yeah, we passed an ordinance that you can't overtake a truck or a bus that's in the roundabout because sometimes they take up two lanes. Uh, the pedestrian crosswalk is about one car length back from the yield bar. And then there's a place of refuge in the middle. It's actually an island that directs the cars which direction to go and which angle. Um, but that's a place of refuge for the pedestrian as they walk across as well. Yeah, when you brought about this change uh, from, from traffic light to roundabout, uh, was there any pushback? It's highly unlikely because of clear advantage of, of a roundabout. But from a driver's perspective, they were so used to traffic lights and they kind of knew what to do. And even though the DMV manual says what needs to be done at a roundabout, uh, because of lack of roundabouts, people are just not used to it. So, was was there a was there a learning curve among the residents of Carmel? Yeah, absolutely, there was. We did a lot of public education, our city newsletter and cable TV uh, channel. We Evergreen, what the reporters call Evergreen articles, they go on vacation, they need to still have something in the newspaper, so they would write these articles in advance and you know, articles in our time, they were called evergreen articles. And so you could always have a roundabout safety article. And so we would lay those out for the reporters and try to get as much free publicity as we could as well about how to drive through roundabouts. The RBMV put it a couple pages in our local driver's manual. Uh, and that's helped a great deal, I think, all those things. I wanted to uh, get into the cost aspect of it. Uh, I, I read that traffic lights actually 
cost a lot. I mean, the numbers were quite startling. So how much of a benefit uh, cost-wise did you get when when you took away traffic lights and, and brought about roundabouts? Well, there's a tremendous cost advantage over time. If I'm converting a four-way stop or two-way stop intersection to a roundabout versus a stoplight, the roundabout's always going to be half a million dollars less. Uh, taking out a stoplight and putting in a roundabout is expensive, usually one and a half to two million dollars. A stoplight in a in our part of the country is about four hundred thousand dollars to install. In a hurricane-prone area, which I guess would include Southern California now, it would be $800,000 to install. Um, and, and then you have about ten dollars to $12,000 electricity a year to power that light. You have to send a timing engineer to adjust it every so often. And you have to send a police officer there. If there's an electrical storm and the electricity goes out, he or she will be there to direct traffic. And none of those things have to take place or roundabout. That buys a lot of nice public art and flowers and and landscaping through the middle of that roundabout. But the the big savings of roundabouts are, you know, each one's a bit different because there's underground utilities, there's land acquisition costs for both stoplights and roundabouts. Uh, and so those, everything I say, take it as a general statement because land may be expensive in one place and not in another. Uh, there may be different types of underground utilities that have to be paid to be moved, depending on, on the uh, law of the individual state or jurisdiction, um, and just what's underground. And you don't know every intersection is different. But here are the big savings. So many times, a civil engineer, city engineer gets a call saying from a city council member or mayor, city manager, constituent, says, you've got to do something. Congestion on this street is just terrible. And, and so the go-to answer usually is to add lanes, not, in other words, increasing intersection capacity, not lane capacity, excuse me, inter I said that backwards, increasing lane capacity, not intersection capacity. All we're really doing is building a bigger parking lot to get more cars through the green cycle of the light. And of course, we're adding to the heat island effect that you get on roads. Roads are very expensive themselves. A two-lane road from scratch in this part of the country costs about $12 million a mile. So adding those lanes is very expensive. Um, and so that's a very subtle savings because roundabouts move 50, and this is the key, they move 50% more cars per hour than a traffic light. So we don't have to widen the streets as much to relieve traffic congestion. And it's a much, millions and millions of dollars can be saved with roundabouts because we don't have to widen the lanes. We even had one street through the middle of town. It was a five lane street, two lanes in, in each direction with a center, what we call a suicide lane, left-hand turn lane. We actually took out that left-hand turn lane, put a median down the middle of it, took out all the traffic lights, put roundabouts in, went from two lanes in each direction to one lane in each direction, added a bike lane, widened the sidewalk on the other side, for pedestrians, and guess what? The time of travel from point A to point B on that street hasn't changed. Speeds have gone down, but we got rid of the wait time at the traffic lights. And, and that is the second big savings that is often overlooked, and that's the cost of the gasoline to the public. 
So we know that cars burn so much gasoline on average sitting at lights. Some go straight through, but we know percentage don't. So you can take that percentage. You average the idle time and starting that big heavy vehicle from zero. Sometimes you have to stop it around about, but not usually. Um, rush hour, you might have to for a little while. Uh, so we, these are all averages and generalizations, but they make the point it's so dramatic. Um, you know, states have different gasoline prices, but, you know, we figured, I think, at $3 a gallon um, a couple of years ago, the cost of the roundabout at $2 million was paid for in gas savings by the public in 18 months. It's bottom that, line. That is an that incredibly statistic. Being better for the environment. But you think about, okay, what's how many people go through that roundabout every day? What's the average wait time at a stoplight versus a roundabout? How much fuel is consumed by that one person? Then just multiply it by your traffic counts. And suddenly it's a very big number. And so even though you know the city pays the roundabouts, the taxpayers are all saving a lot of gas. And cumulatively, that adds up. That 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 is an incredible statistic. I think two two things are are have to be noted here. One is the eight hundred k to install a traffic light and uh, such high fuel costs uh, cost savings. I think that that's an unbelievable. How many how many traffic lights does Carmel have now? Six. <laughs> and we're to keep one. We have the other five are all coming out. They've been funded. It will take place over the next two years. We have about one hundred and fifty roundabouts today. I can I can count six traffic lights in like the four blocks uh, of the cityscape that I'm living in. That's that's amazing. Uh, and the other thing that I've noted is that you know bike lanes versus uh, versus cars in in traffic lights. Uh, you know this is something that that I have noticed is within a five mile range, uh, biking and driving is about the same uh, same time. So uh, the amount of time you spend at a traffic light is significantly higher versus if you were to take a take a bike trail uh, even though like you mentioned you know that the average the average speeds are much lesser but at the same time you get to your destination about the same time uh, as a car we have a lot of cyclists that use our roundabouts they can either ride through the roundabout at 15 to 20 miles an hour which is the recommended speed for a vehicle whether it's a bike or a car uh, or they can uh, walk it across on the pedestrian side we have bike paths along all our major arterial roads in Carmel, uh, 12 foot wide bike paths. And uh, the crosswalk's always one car length back at a roundabout from the yield bar. And there's an island of refuge in the middle. So the walker or pedestrian can wait in the middle and only have to look in one direction each time. But bicyclists, especially kids and, and younger people or older people may choose not to ride in the roundabout with the cars, but ride on the side paths as well above the curb. Uh, that's why I ride most of the time. Occasionally I ride through the roundabout, but generally I stay in the uh, pedestrian area. Yeah, sometimes reduced speeds, uh, not sometimes, I think all the time, reduced speeds cause less bike accidents and reduced speeds cause less pedestrian accidents as well. Uh, I mean, uh, according to statistics. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did you have any pushback from uh, traffic light companies because you were making this change <laughs> and how did you navigate through that? Actually, we have a local company that makes stoplights, and the owner is a good guy. He came to me a number of years, 20 years ago probably, and said, we'd like to donate a light. Of course, we had a lot more lights then, but he donated one for the main corner, the corner that will always be a light. It was one of the first stoplights in the United States, ironically. 
uh, has a plaque that says it was the first, but then I found one in Virginia that was a week or two earlier. So it was one of the first uh, back in the early 1900s. And so he donated a beautiful black ornamental uh, post and stoplight to that area. So, well, I want to, when I bring customers in, they all kind of laugh. You're a stoplight salesman in a city without stoplights. He said, I want one good stoplight to be able to show them what our product looks like. But uh, no, he, he was fine because he, um, he said, there's lots of cities with lots of stoplights. What you're doing won't change my business. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's one of those things, right? Like historic downtown. Um, you know, when I first landed in, in the US, I was in I was in Blacksburg, Virginia, and it said historic da- downtown. And then every town is a historic downtown. So, <laughs> so uh, I guess the same applies to uh, applies to the first traffic light as well. I mean, lot Blacksburg, of- you are Virginia Tech. The Blacksburg's beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. Uh, they actually did uh, have four or five roundabouts and things changed. Uh, I did a PhD in Virginia Tech. So I was there for about five years and I did see a lot more roundabouts, uh, especially in downtown area. So um, yeah, uh, they are they are pretty much inspired by Carmel. And, and I have to point out that New York and Virginia um, are two states that have uh, that have decided that roundabouts should be considered as an alternative before before planning for a for a traffic light. So so that's a that's a yes. fantastic uh, development. I was worried that New York had done that. I was not aware that Virginia had yet. Yeah, so um, roundabouts are now the default in Virginia. I don't think they are default, but while planning, I think they should be given a serious consideration. Is is what I read. They generally get extra consideration under federal highway trust fund funding if you're in a congestion mitigation air quality area, what's called CMAC, um, because they do eliminate a lot of environmental damage or they reduce a lot of environmental damage. And so that's, um, it gets extra points when you're competing for federal funding on that highway trust fund. Okay. That, 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 that's, that's really good. I think that's a really nice uh, perk for uh, for deciding for choosing roundabouts um so i was looking at some statistics and carmel is way above any other city when it comes to roundabout per capita per capita or even just just roundabouts in general um what cities have reached out to you or have you uh, inspired uh, to take up this measure to to change it to roundabouts oh many cities have i uh... napa california was putting one in off i think it was 29 and first street and I helped on that one a bit. Sarasota, Florida reached out and I gave some talks. Um, several cities in Wisconsin, Minnesota, uh, Drake University had me talking about it in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, Missaguay, uh, you know, which is a large city next to Toronto, Canada. Uh, it, we think of it as a suburb, but it's million or over a million people in and of itself. Uh, so, We've, um, we've talked, a lot of cities have visited Carmel, a lot of suburban cities, Franklin, Tennessee, Sacramento, sent a group in a number of years ago. We actually hosted, in 2011, we hosted something called the International Roundabout Conference. In Carmel? In Carmel. Oh, wow. We had about 200 people, most of whom were civil engineers that wanted to see, and we only had about 50 then, but it was still more than anybody else had anywhere in the country. So they could go out and observe and, and uh, look at the various roundabouts. And we presented a book with 
the dimensions and angles of every roundabout we had to them. Uh, it was good economic development for us, too. They came and stayed in our hotels and shopped in our stores and ate in our restaurants. So that was fun. <laughs> I got a, this is somewhat humorous. I get a call number or I get an email, actually, a number of years ago. And the email gentleman identified himself as the president of the United Kingdom Roundabout Appreciation Society. <laughs> okay. And, and asked me to call him sometime. And so I did. And uh, we have all kinds of societies and associations. This is, this is well, hilarious. It gets better. It gets better. So I called him. It was about noon Eastern time in the U.S., which I knew would be about six o'clock in England. And uh, he said, oh, perfect timing. We're having a meeting of the Roundabout Appreciation Society right now. I heard noise in the background, and and, and the noise uh, seemed to uh, me to sound like pub noise. And so I asked him, I said, do you meet in a pub? And he said, of course we do. We're British. And I said, well, how many people are in the Roundabout Appreciation Society? And he said, well, tonight there's five of us here. Sometimes we get up to seven. And so I was smiling to myself. And what he wanted to do, he said, they put out a calendar every year of the months, you know, January, February, March. And, the, and it's the roundabout calendar. And they have beautiful roundabouts from all over the world. And on the cover, they put the world's most beautiful roundabout. And he said, we've been reading about what you're doing. We'd like you to submit some photography, which we may use on the calendar. And um, so... Uh, we sent some over and they decided to put us on the cover and we were the month of December as well, a beautiful roundabout. And then, of course, I get a call, how many calendars would you like to buy? And <laughs> so we ended up buying about 10,000 calendars at $2 a calendar. Of course, we used them for economic development purposes. We were on the cover, so we handed them out. But I thought these guys had the most creative way ever to get beer money for their <laughs> nightly meetings around about appreciation society. That is hilarious. They were probably just just at a curry house right after a football game or or at a pub. Oh, that's that the climax is hilarious. Wow. Um, I I also I also realize that uh, you are a part of uh, Energy Independence and Climate uh, Protection Task Force. Um, tell me more about the work that you do for them. Well. It's, it's a local advisory task for I did it under President Obama's administration. I was asked to do it again uh, under this administration. And it's local leaders, about 20 of us, 25 of us from around the country, county commissioners to uh, governors to uh, uh, mayors, uh, a few city council people, some tribal representatives uh, that um, talk about how the federal government can be a better partner in terms of fighting a climate change, improving air quality. And, you know, I'm a Republican. Sometimes people say to me, why are you involved in climate change? Republicans haven't done much. And I point out the history to them. And well, first of all, it was Franklin, excuse me, it was uh, Teddy Roosevelt, a Republican who set up all of our national parks. It was Eisenhower who established the Arctic Reserve, a Republican. It was Nixon, a Republican, who signed the Clean Water Drinking Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, and half a dozen more. And actually, signed the bill that created the Environmental Protection Agency. It was Reagan who, with Margaret Thatcher, went to Montreal and signed and really led the signing of the Montreal Protocols to reduce ozone production so we didn't have an ozone hole in the northern hemisphere, which would have caused all sorts of cancers 
you know, most people live in the Northern Hemisphere and at the Southern, we had a hole in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and it was a senior President Bush, the father, that actually passed legislation, promoted and passed, signed legislation that uh, started to do data collection. So we'd actually have baselines for various data points that we needed to study the climate. So, uh, and then I'd say, have you, you know, I have yet to meet a Republican or a Democrat who wants their family to drink dirty water or breathe uh, dirty air. I said, this is a nonpartisan issue and, and, and should be. And so I'm pleased to work with uh, the administration trying to uh, help them help cities better. So much, uh, you know, the average American still spends two hours a day in their automobile. That's because of bad city planning. That's because we use single use zoning. You have to drive so far to go places in so many cities. And, and so mayors and, and county commissioners and other local elected officials can do so much. When we thought the last president was, was going to withdraw us from the Paris Climate Agreement, mayors got together and said, you know, we can meet the U.S. goals just by having the cities band together and make uh, some small changes. Of course, you know, we gave notice we're withdrawing, but never actually did it due to the administration change, which is a good thing. We, we needed to be with the rest of the world in that climate treaty. Um, and But it shows the power of, of good city design and good local leadership, because local leaders actually make, can make a huge difference when it comes to climate change. Wow. Uh, I mean, zoning is attributed to, um, you know, the zoning and urban sprawl uh, both are attributed to uh, you know longer time uh, longer times in the on the road uh, climate change uh, more carbon dioxide emissions uh, but houston is one city that does not have any zone zoning laws and it it's not any better in houston um, so what do you see the the future of these laws are uh, should zoning laws be completely eliminated and more mixed use spaces be uh, be brought into cities no, cities need to be in charge of quality of building construction. We, they need to be in charge of where the curb cuts and driveway cuts are. All these things are very important to have a well-functioning, safe city. The difference is the type of zoning, I think, that I would promote versus other cities. I believe in what's called forum-based zoning, where we're not so worried about use as we are, except it has to be mixed use as we are about the form of the buildings and where they appear and the density of the buildings. Um, so form-based building is almost always mixed-use zoning. Uh, it has to do with heights. Um, it has to do with walkability because of the design. Uh, it requires mixed-use in a certain percentage. And so it's the type of zoning, not lack of zoning, that's going to save us. Okay. Uh, you mentioned briefly that you are going to retire as of December 2023. You're not going to run again uh, after such an illustrious... I'm not sure I'll be retired, but I'm not going to retire anymore. I have lots of other things I want to try. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, that's one of the things that I want to touch upon before I end this podcast. Um, you have brought economic development to the city of Carmel. You have redesigned the city. You have made it more walkable. You have increased green space. Uh, you have improved infrastructure. And I was looking at, at one of the videos of uh, high school in Carmel, and it's the, the it's it's awesome. Uh, there is there's no better way to way to put it. Got to move uh, here, Bell. I'm sorry. Got to move here. 
<laughs> if 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 I get to work remote, then I would I definitely would. Um, and and the last thing you have promoted diversity uh, in the city of Carmel, and people have been happy. It has been consistently ranked at one 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 of the top cities in the U.S. My question to you is: You are taking pretty much all the boxes that we need in America. Why are you not running for the president? <laughs> You're kind. I'm too old, number one, and it's a tough role. It's uh, is it because you are the Mister Nice Guy? <laughs> yeah, it. Um, we can be tough when we have to, when something when the policy issue is important. We try never to personalize things, but we we have had to be tough to make the sort of innovative changes we've made in Carmel. Your your comments are very nice. Thank you. But, um, you know, if you could be president without having to go through the election process, it'd be a wonderful thing. <laughs> it's that's not our system. That's not our system. So it's just a long, grilling thing. And uh, I think I can be helpful to other cities. And that's where the difference really lies. I, you know, I have young students and older students sometimes come to see me. And, you know, they've been bit starry-eyed about getting into politics and of course they all want to go to the u.s capitol building or go work at the white house and i point out to them i said well that's kind of fun you know you get to uh to work in some pretty beautiful buildings there but if you really want to have an impact on people's lives you'll have far more impact on an hourly basis working in local government in a city that you love than you ever will in Washington, D.C. You're a bit isolated uh, from your constituents. You're working on broad nation policy issues, which are important, no question about it. But if you really want to have an impact on people's lives, everybody sees their government, you know, from their back porch in a way. You know, what's this decision going to do to my property value? Is it going to make my commute to work better or worse? Is it going to be a great park for my kids to play in? Uh, am I safe when I go out for a walk? in my community. These are things that matter to people. Did my, does my trash get picked up on time? Is there litter in the downtown area? Are there empty buildings? Or is it a fun, vibrant place to go to? Or there are some cultural sports opportunities for my family. These are, you, you can really have an impact on people's lives. You get involved in local government and do it well. And you could work very hard in Washington, DC. And you know most people don't see a difference. Now that we don't need good people, in making federal decisions. But as a Republican, one of the you know old-fashioned Republican ideas we had is that uh, government closest to the people is the best. It's also the most effective because you can impact people's lives so much uh, on a regular basis in local government. I had women call today, had an issue. Uh, we got it solved. We got the right department heads involved. It got solved in half an hour. Well, we made a difference in her life today. Uh, not sure that happens every day in D.C., you sum it up perfectly. I think if you are if you are with the local government, you you touch more lives personally on a personal level than uh, than you, if you were in DC. You summed it up perfectly. I think I think what what you're dreading is the campaign trail, right? I mean, the, the one the arduous one and a half year or one year campaign trail, and um, you summed it up perfectly where where you said that you know if if that was not the process, you might as well give it a shot. <laughs> we. Um... I remember watching the debate four years ago in, in the Republican primary where, you know, the candidate that eventually won was shouting and screaming at people. And it was just so embarrassing to me. It was as an American. And we went back afterwards and I, I, I'd seen it once before. Um, 
I was too young to remember it as a kid. I was alive, but too young to remember it, but I'd seen it since. Went back and found on YouTube the Kennedy-Nixon debates, the first televised debates. Yeah. And it was such a respectful thing. They disagreed about quite a few issues, but every time they disagreed, both candidates would say the other one, now respect my opponent's opinion. He wants the same thing we do. I just think there's a better way to accomplish it. And it, it was so refreshing and professional and, and gentlemanly, quite honestly, thinking we need to get back to that. Um, civility in politics is tremendously important. You know, the nature of a representative democracy is that we disagree with the best uh, how, how to do things. And that's good. We get a better answer because we debate these things. But we, we don't come together as a country and we don't get good results. We just scream at each other. We need to carefully consider. Remember one thing President Obama said once, it really impressed me, and it was, I try to listen harder when somebody disagrees with me. And we all need to do that when we make political decisions. Listen hard, listen carefully. You may decide that you're right, and, and you know the person's points don't fly. Sometimes they do, though. Sometimes you change your mind, and, and that's why our country has been strong for you know a quarter of a millennium at this point. Um, but we have to come together around these basic values, recognize it's okay to disagree, but not personalize it and have respectful civil discussions. Uh, simply because somebody doesn't agree with me doesn't mean they're a bad person. But that's so many times what I see happening in Washington today. You don't agree with my side, you're evil, you're corrupt. And uh, that's that democracy is not going to work for a long yeah, that is something that um, is something we continue down that road. Yeah, that is something that I see increasingly is that if someone has a different opinion, they don't they don't necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean that they are a bad person. And and we can all coexist even if we disagree on on a thing or two, you know, you know. You should disagree on policy issues. You get a better answer, but you don't have to be disagreeable during it. You can do it in a civil way. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at, I was watching some of the tapes uh, that you mentioned uh, of of President uh, Nixon at the time, and and you're right. I mean, there was so much more civility uh, back in those days, and and it'll be nice to to get get back to that point. Um, this is a bit of a digression. Everybody but... should go watch that debate, 1960 or 1959 debate between Kennedy and Nixon. That's that's worth watching. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a bit of a digression, but uh, has it happened that? you watch uh you are pretty close to uh one of these uh people who are who are running for the for the president and they had a different opinion on stage and they were a completely different uh, person uh when when they met you uh you don't have to name them but you know are, are they different people in person yes, i have seen that sometimes you see it sometimes you don't you know uh, some of them are uh i do uh, know mike pence fairly well he lives in carmel he was oh, our yeah. governor while I was mayor, so we worked together very quickly for seven years. And uh, what you see on stage is exactly what you see from Mike. There's no difference. Uh, he's a very religious guy. He's uh, he's a bit dry, you know, some days and stiff. But that's the way he is. That's just the way he is. Uh, and I don't agree with him on some things. Other things I do. But uh, he, he's uh, very real in the sense that he's no different on stage than he is in person. Uh, and then there's other candidates I've met who are extremely different. It just depends on the person, I think. 
okay okay well uh it was such a pleasure talking to you jim uh, uh i mean what an honor i mean so much food for thought not for not for uh just public policy makers but for for people in general that you know we can disagree but at the same time we can we need to constantly evolve and listen to other sides uh and who knows someone else might have a better answer and and it's really important um i know you will not be the mayor of carmel indiana after december but i i really wish and hope uh, and i know that you will continue to inspire many more cities to to have that far sightedness uh, uh, in city planning and public policy so thank you so much thank you i hope to meet you in person sometime soon absolutely we'll 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 make that work thank you so much bye